Who are we? And what does our life mean anyway? Those are big philosophical questions. And I can't answer those, so I'm not going to try. But what I can answer, though, or at least what I can give you some semblance of understanding about, is where and how humans came to be. In this particular set of stories, we're going to begin tracing the origin of human civilization, watching the rise of humans from, from the plains and the, and the fields of Africa as they spread out across the world and begin to build cities as we move from early man into the Bronze Age period. We're going to look at the inventive and creative ways in which humans begin to reshape their world and to try to gain mastery over their environment. We're going to look at how we came to be and how these first ideas actually came into circulation. So buckle up and join me as your whispering wizard as I walk you through the exciting tales of history. Narmer is an unusual name. And no, I'm not talking about the cat from Garfield. The Egyptian word for nar means catfish, and the word mir means chisel. So it sounds a lot like a stage name for a blues musician. Come see Catfish Chisel in the Nile Delta Blues at the Memphis House of Rock. Well, actually, it's a little more impressive than that because he's Egypt's first pharaoh. And he burst onto the scene, or at least the first relief we have of him, beating a man to death. So modern sensibilities have to be thrown out the window because we've entered into a violent world. Now, the two Egypts, as we know, consisted of upper and lower, and they're now unified under the reign of this man. What kind of man uh, Narmer was is something that perhaps we'll never know. But if we believe the propaganda he made about himself, perhaps we aren't actually all that interested. He depicts himself as a lion, in some places a giant scorpion, a powerful catfish. And on the back of the thing known as the Narmer palette, where the first things found that told us about him, he is shown walking through rows of dead bodies in order to be sure that they have been properly desecrated, because that's very important. And the way they were desecrated was that they cut off their heads and their genitals, castrated them, and put them down at their feet. So that's one way to do it. But Narmer had one more powerful piece of propaganda up his sleeve. Every pharaoh over the next 30 dynasties would need this particular piece of propaganda. You see, Narmer is more than a lion, a scorpion, a catfish, or even a superhero. Narmer's a god. Egypt is something very unusual in many of the cultures we're looking at because it's one of the oldest, longest autocracies in history. Now you may be asking, what is an autocracy? Well, autocracy is when one person has all the power invested in him or her. At least that's the simple short answer. These autocrats who ruled Egypt typically came from the same family. They exercised rulership from the moment they got it till the time they died out. Or sometimes the family became weak and lost the throne. A family who rules for generations is known as a dynasty. The first real dynasty in Egyptian history begins with Narmer, who we talked about already. And sometime in this dynasty, the capital was moved to the city of Memphis. Memphis was an early port city. It's set near one of the more fertile parts of Egypt, the top part, in a place called the Nile Delta. The Egyptians called the Nile River Itavu, which means the river, because to the Egyptians, well, it was really the only river of importance. The river, though, had its origins far away from Egypt, all the way down into Africa, in a place called modern-day Tanzania. At certain seasons, this river would flood. If it wasn't a big flood, it was called a low Nile. 
if it was a very big flood, it might be called a high Nile. This could have a very big impact on sedentary agriculture. And if you don't know what that means, that just means agriculture that's sitting in one location. The average person on the Nile was probably a farmer living off what he or she could fish or hunt or grow. Over a city's grow, two types of workers emerged, filling those cities with skilled and unskilled workers. Skilled workers probably did a little better for themselves, making a living by rock cutting, doing carpentry, working gold, and other such trades. There were, of course, traders who ran the river, factory-type workers, and merchants who brought wares to the market. It seems most likely that the bulk of the workers were plebes, and I mean that in the truest possible sense of the word. They provided strong bodies and very hard, back-breaking labor, which they did for you know, pretty cheap price. That price usually was bread and beer. That's why they usually paid them. The pharaohs quickly learned that if they wanted to keep power, they needed to make sure they were always building, which meant there were a lot of jobs for unskilled laborers. Statues, temples, royal mortuary precincts became increasingly popular with each passing dynasty. You could almost say that the motto of this age was always be building. So the Egyptians had very little access to power. Except for one way, an ordinary peasant might get put on the path of a social ladder. This was called hieroglyphics. Began in an early period, became even more prolific in the era of kings and pyramids. If you were illiterate, you were not terribly mobile. That was true in Egypt, that's been true historically, and that's true now. Most of Egypt fell into that category of illiteracy. The writing style was pretty hard to master. It took years to learn this pictographic script, so it could be very time-consuming. Remember that social status of Egypt was stark. It means there was not a real huge middle class to be found. Writing was the distinction, and it served as a clear marker of someone's status. Hieroglyphics was used up until the Roman occupation under Augustus Caesar, and then the knowledge of this kind of slowly fades from history. The unlikely heroine who rediscovered it was, of all people, and get ready for it, Napoleon Bonaparte. It was actually during his Egyptian campaign, when he was fighting the British, that he found something that he sent back to Paris, a piece of stone that contained three columns. One was hieroglyphics, one had Coptic and Greek. Two of those were readable. Now, the stone was known as the Rosetta Stone, and not the language program used for your computer, even though it's named after it. The stone had been made by one of the Ptolemies of Egypt. We haven't got there yet. The Ptolemies are ruling in like 190 BCE, so we're kind of far away. And sometime after, the skill to read it kind of faded away. This was, of course, until Champollion, as he's known. Jean-Francois Champollion stepped into the picture. Champollion wasn't a scholar when he broke the code. Of course, that kind of depends on your you know, your definition of scholar. And the boy was 14 years old when he started taking on the task of deciphering, deciphering this language. A uh, language that had not been read for anywhere in the ballpark of, you know, roughly 2,000 years. It's safe to say that he was something of a kind of standard nerd. Um, instead of spending his free time skateboarding Paris during the revolution or joining Napoleon on the military conquest, he labored away breaking this very difficult toe, code, a lot like Michael Ventris did with uh, linear B script in Greek. He finally made headway he participated in other expeditions, language studies, and uh, across the area until his uh, death of a stroke at the age of 41. It is his labor that's opened up the story we are telling. If you've read a book on Egypt and you know a lot about what happened, you can thank Jean-Napoleon. 
Now, many of the building projects in Egypt give us the impression that Egypt was a culture obsessed with death. Death is kind of everywhere. Ordinary people, of course, had more common places that their remains were placed. But early on, pharaohs claimed a distinction in death. At first, they started building something called a mastaba, which were basically a one-level platform with underground chambers. These were very powerful statements of pomp and privilege. Often in the early periods of the king's, the king's entourage would be accompanied, accompanying him in death. So people that worked for him would also go down and sacrifice themselves with him. Now, at first we thought maybe they took poison or maybe some of them were already dead. But as it turns out, archaeologists found out that they had been strangled. So not a great way to go. Even the dog bit the dust. Yeah, you heard that right. Which is kind of an interesting thing to imagine uh, telling your dog if you're on your deathbed, if I go, you go. Okay, so the dog was definitely in fear. But around the fourth dynasty, this kind of changes and these huge entourage of people going with him into the afterlife changes. But the tombs become bigger. They become more elaborate, which of course is a symbol of status. But it's more than that. They're not just resting places. These tombs become a kind of resurrection machine. So the end of the second dynasty brings a, a new family to the period of history known as the Old Kingdom or the Age of Pyramids. This, this place takes place roughly around 2686 to 2181, give or take a few years. A third dynasty pharaoh whose name is Nedjeriket, and please don't ask me to say that again. I'm going to call him by his Greek name, Dozier. He builds a pyramid in a place called Saqqara. This was kind of a whole new level. It's a basic standard step pyramid. And, and the foods, these were, these were quite elaborate. They came with food, they came with utensils. They even had a toilet. So if your spirit needed to poop, uh, you had that taken care of. However, uh, hopefully they remember TP. You know, it's not a shortage or whatever. But this, uh, this was the, the symbol of power that sat throughout the kingdom. It became a national project to build these sort of things. By the fourth dynasty, they're getting ambitious. And one of those characters who becomes ambitious and is known to us is one known as Seneferu. He's the first king of this dynasty, and he wants to up the ante. You see, he styles himself Nebmat, which means Lord of Truth, obviously not of humility. He saw the project as a national project. His life, his impending death, his resurrection was critical for everyone. So he wanted to get this clean, beautiful, perfect geometric shape. And everything was going great until somebody did the math wrong. There's always somebody that doesn't know how to do the math, like seriously, guys. And it started to collapse, so they had to change the angle of it, which creates something known as the Bent Pyramid. The Bent Pyramid was built around 26 BCE. This is a massive embarrassment to Pharaoh Seneferu, so he had to settle for a little red pyramid when he died. Shame on him. You should learn to do your own math. Nevertheless, his son actually would figure out how to make Dad's dreams come true. Not for Dad, of course, but for himself. And his son built the big one. His son's name is Khufu. Now, Khufu was determined. He was going to get this thing right. Well, he didn't personally figure it out. He let somebody else do the math. Actually, had a nephew named uh, Himiona, who seemed to, from his statue, have enjoyed uh, dining at the king's table. Khufu must have fed him well because uh, he worked pretty hard for him, and he solved the riddle of how to build the great pyramids of Giza, pyramids that everyone, you know, anywhere in the world uh, will knows about and will sometimes travel to see. He tried to orient it so that it, it kind of perfectly aligned with the points of a compass. 
Because again, it wasn't a tomb, it was a resurrection machine. It allowed the Pharaoh to take his place among the stars, but it had to be perfectly aligned. 10,000 workers were probably slaving away making this pyramid, and they were mostly paid with beer and bread from local bakeries and breweries. Now, he built a second one nearby for his mom. Uh, now, Khufu was a kind of a mama's boy. Now, he might have been an autocrat that ruled the nation, but he said yes, mom, when she spoke. After this, his son uh, builds what we know as the Sphinx. If you've ever been to the Egypt complex, and I've been there, the Sphinx is something that you'll see this big Giza complex. Uh, but after, after the Sphinx was built, the grandson comes along, and the grandson's not really a great builder. Now, that might be a good thing, but in fact, in this case, I think it might actually be a bad thing because when they're not building, things kind of go downhill. The pyramids are a fascinating thing, and they give us kind of an insight into the religious ideas of the period. Again, the pyramids do not reveal a fascination with death. Instead, they reveal a fascination with overcoming it. The dead pharaoh becomes Osiris at his death. He takes on the person of Osiris. He becomes one with him. And the new pharaoh becomes one with the god Horus. So the grave then was a way for the body to be preserved uh, because they believed that the, the pharaoh had a, a ba, which is basically similar to a spirit. There's actually a whole, you can look at this, the ka, the ba, you know, it's a lot of details involved with this. But I'm trying to streamline this down because we don't want to get into all that in, in too much detail. The Ba could travel in and out of the tomb, but it did need to have a, a place that it could return to, and in this case, it needed to have a body. The best of this is probably exemplified in the life of a pharaoh who's known as Unas. Unas is the last king of the fifth dynasty. Unas came to power in a, in a period of Egyptian history when Egypt is starting to take that process towards crumbling. Unas was a pretty good pharaoh, and he did halt the imminent decline while he ruled. At his death, he was entombed in his pyramid like any pharaoh would be. Um, and uh, his tomb was full of spells and incantations. It was believed that every night when the sun sank down in the, into the underworld, Unas had to make a journey. That journey could be dangerous. It was one fraught with dragons, uh, serpents, and other things that could eat your ba. Not a good thing. If you didn't know your spells and your incantations and have that properly memorized, then you could end up toast. You could end up crocodile food. Your bah could get eaten by a crocodile. So he would arrive and sit with the gods as Osiris, and the sun would then rise. The next night, he would wake up in his sarcophagus again, and the journey would yet again begin. So the body of the pharaoh then needed to be preserved, so the bah had somewhere to go. And this was reserved through a process known as embalming, a process we still do to the dead today. The organs, according to Herodotus, and what we can see from archaeology today, the organs were removed from the body. Herodotus talks about, and Herodotus is a Greek historian, if you don't know who that is. He talks about them putting a hook up to the nose and pulling the brain out. Oh, God. Okay. And they, put, they took the organs out of the body, and they put them in these things called canopic jars, which had jars with little heads of like cats and weird stuff on the top and the organs were kept in there but the body then was preserved and it went through this process that the best way to describe it it was put inside the solution or and it stayed in there it was basically pickled okay when it was when it was taken out it was it was preserved and they would wrap it in cloth and lay it inside of the coffin which is known in egyptian as a sarcophagus so meanwhile 
back in Mesopotamia. Now, when 3100 BC, when Narmer is beating the Egyptians into submission, the story of Sumer is not going that way at all. Now, Sumer set along two rivers known as the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, the cities of Sumer were independent, and they and happen and remained their own like rival entities with one another. Around 3500, we know a flood happened in the region, and one of the cities deeply affected was Uruk, which had which was kind of the powerhouse. So by 3000, Uruk's power is kind of broken over the region. They're not holding the big control, and the city-states are constantly in flux, often attempting to gain dominance over the region. In a way, this was kind of a fun way. To, this was a kind of a fun time in in Sumerian history. It was like a wild west living in 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 these cities. And the causes this causes transition of leadership to change from religious figures, which were usually the leaders of cities, to what we know as the kingship model. Now the cities were the greatest political units. Um, they created, you know, rival cities. And they all want to, they all want mastery and they all want to drive organization. Uh, and this drives organization, competition, increasing levels of hierarchy. The king and the priest become ultimately one entity at, at, for, for a time. So the king is the priest, and then they split again, but the king is kind of the higher entity. The kings uh, become entity, and each location and local councils, because originally we think they were ruled by kind of a local council, those kind of drop off. They all spoke the same language in the beginning, Sumerian, and much of the culture was similar across the cities. Now, to protect these cities from claimants and desperados, each city was accompanied by, usually by a wall that fortified its inhabitants from invaders. Now, life in Sumer was very similar to life in Egypt in a lot of different ways. A majority of people farmed cereal crops. The Sumerians also had their own systems of skilled and unskilled workers that in many ways mirrored what we saw in Egypt. However, slavery was already more pronounced in Sumerian society at this point than Egyptian society. And the Egyptians are going to pick it up and they're going to do well with it. Uh, yeah, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But in any event, uh, slavery was already more pronounced among the Sumerians. The Sumerians had kind of a jump start because they started before uh, the Egyptians really got their civilization kicked off the ground. By the time Egypt comes along, Sumer's been around for you know quite a while, as you well know. They gave us a lot of things, like the wheel. So if you came... Uh, you went somewhere today in your car, you can thank the Sumerians. Uh, the, and every 4th of July, the nation enjoys beer with their barbecue. You can thank a Sumerian for that as well. They invented beer, and they often paid people with it. Might not sound like a great pay, but in fact, it was pretty good. Uh, water wasn't great to drink. It wasn't safe to drink. So people usually drank beer. But uh, it was hard to purify that beer. A lot of junk and dross set at the top of the beer. So the Sumerians invented something called a straw. So if you just use a straw, you would thank your local Sumerian. Sumerian, the straws were not made out of plastic like ours. They were made out of bronze and they weren't very short. They were actually very long. So you could put them down into a container to reach the bottom of the container where the good beer was. People would sit and enjoy this. Uh, two people sitting one on each side on a, on a chair and take their big bronze straw and put it down and drink their beer and get drunk, I assume. They also created the sail, and um, the farmers gave us irrigation, and they loved making things out of bronze. Pretty much everybody did. Bronze was the preferred metal, which is why we call it, you know, the Bronze Age. Now, society was highly stratified, and at the top, there was some of the Sumerians called the Lugal. Lugal means leader. Now, I already told you, it was a little like the Wild West, so bands of marauders in neighboring cities might decide to pay you a visit, and that visit usually wasn't you know, very friendly. So a military leader 
was something of a big man, would assume control of the situations and lead the men to fight, kind of like the quarterback of the high school, uh, the, the man, the legend. So Lugals were successful, and if they were successful, they took preeminence. If they weren't successful, you know, they were dead. But if they were successful, they took preeminence. And this concept of kingship that we have going on in Egypt really begins to take root in Sumerian society. Now, they learned quickly that one city was not enough. And they kind of got an, uh, a desire to take more cities and bring the area under the control. Fortunately for the Sumerians, it takes a long time before somebody actually accomplishes that goal. Up until about 2300, this was not really a big problem. War was a part of life there, and uh, it was a part of their religion. Sumerians believed that war was not really a choice because if the gods willed it, there really wasn't little, there was little else to be done other than just to obey it. This concept is not only true for the Sumerians, but it has, has resonance with the Egyptians. Later, the Greeks will also have the same opinion. So this is an idea that stays in society, sadly, for a, quite a long time. The armies of the Lugal were, were a pretty tough ragtag group. They wore leather helmets, spears, and caps. They looked like a you know a group of Captain Americas from the 1930s, uh, except they were, you know, uh, they wore skirts. So that's a little different. But religion was key to life in Sumer. The heart of every city was a temple complex, which you already know, because every city had its own god, its own main god. That doesn't mean they didn't worship a lot of gods. That just means that there was one god that was usually in power over that city. And they would dedicate it to that. They would dedicate the ziggurat, the, the big temple complex, to that city's chosen deity. Now the gods were were in total control. While the Sumerians might not have loved them, but they did fear them. They were polytheistic, and their gods had power over the elements of nature, which scared the daylights out of them. Um, so they tried to keep them happy. That's what you do when you're not sure what your god will do. You keep them happy. They believed in an afterlife like the Egyptians, but the afterlife for the Sumerians was not quite as joyous as the afterlife for the Egyptians seemed to be, or at least the Egyptian kings, because not everybody in Egypt at this point really has much of an afterlife. They became what is called the Shades, and that might sound cool, like, a, like an awesome band or something, but it isn't. Shades means that they're like a shadow of their former self, and they kind of roam the underworld. They mourn for the loss of life. Yeah, it's sad, depressing afterlife, but that's what they believed and thought. Now, these places are not the only places that are flourishing. By 2600 BC, there are other centers of culture around the globe. South of China, we already know in China the Longshan culture is still continuing. A civilization known as the Indus, or the Harappan civilization, is beginning about 2600. Secluded by the Himalayas, they start to build along the Indus River in northern India. Uh, we go to the north in Europe. England also is kind of hobbling along. England, France, Germany, these areas. Uh, England, uh, for one, has this huge impressive site of Stonehenge. and it's, it's in its first form. It's up and has been for about 400 years by 2600. Although these two set by the River Thames, the light of culture re didn't really take root in England at this point in time. In fact, it remains kind of planted around the Mediterranean. England will, for the most part, and I know someone will take umbrage to the word primitive, but I'm totally going to use it because I can't, I, I do what I want, it's my podcast. So uh, in this case, it's they kind of primitive, and everything kind of north of the Alps really does not take on the same form and, 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 and style of civilization that we see happening around the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is where things are going to go. But there is a place in Europe around the Mediterranean that is starting to flourish, or at least it's beginning. It hasn't really gotten to its full, its full bloom yet. 
a new people group that we'll come to know as the Minoans. They'll occupy an island called Crete. And you keep your eyes on them. We have a story about them we haven't told yet, and we will tell it in time. As we close in on the third millennium, there close the third millennium, there there will be a there's a burst of of civilizations that begin to rise, not merely by rivers, but they start rising kind of everywhere. By 2300, the world is beginning to change in dramatic ways, starts to pivot. A new age of power and violent intrigue and innovation is about to begin. New cultures like the Mayans and the Chinese will rise. Old cultures will go through a shaking that will reinvent the ancient world. The age of power is really just beginning.